This evening, I'd like to continue our exploration of right effort, because at this stage in the retreat, we're still, in a way, in the launching phase, where we're gathering our energy, gathering our effort. And I think it might be helpful to acknowledge that in English, this term right effort, I don't know about for you, but for me, it took years to disassociate it from blood, sweat, and tears. Just something about those two words coming together to my ears, to this conditioning, brought up this kind of tense, tight, pushing, willful kind of energy. And it took me quite a long time before I finally read the Buddha's actual definition of right effort. And it was so much more nuanced than that term might suggest. And it actually has four aspects to it. So the first aspect is the effort to try to prevent unskillful states from afflicting the mind unskillful states like the hindrances that we've been talking about. The Buddha was a realist, so even with that as the first right effort, he understood there'll be times when those afflictive states still manage to sneak in there. So the second effort is the effort to remove or release those hindrances, afflictive states when they have arisen. And then the third effort is, on the other side of the scale, to help bring skillful qualities into the heart and the mind. And then the fourth effort, when those skillful states have come up, is the effort to help maintain, prolong, strengthen, and deepen them. So the good news is it's not all about slogging through the hindrances and getting rid of the defilements and overcoming the afflictive states and on and on and on. At least half of that equation is about skillful states. And metaphorically, I think it's a little bit like gardening. Even if you're not a gardener, I think you understand intuitively that you can't just get a bunch of little seedlings and stick them in a random piece of soil and expect them to grow. We need to take time to prepare that garden bed to pull out the rocks and the stones, to uproot the weeds, to bring in some mulch and fertilizer and get the soil right, we plant the seedlings. But even then, we can't just plant them and then walk away. We have to keep watering them and fertilizing them and clearing away the slugs and the snails and all that kind of thing. And then eventually, we can harvest the crop of nourishing veggies or flowers or whatever we've planted. And that's similar to what we're doing here. Metaphorically, we're clearing out the hindrances that we've been talking about. So just coming back to the the five ways of removing distracting thoughts, removing hindrances, you may remember that the first one that Willa mentioned the other day was to take a finer peg to knock out a coarser peg. And in this analogy, the hindrances are like those grosser or coarser pegs. And we need to find a tool, a finer tool, that can help to release those hindrances. 
And so in this scheme, what I like to do, what we might explore as the more refined peg, is the four Brahmavihara qualities, the skillful qualities of heart and mind that are metta or kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, mudita, and equanimity. And these are four profoundly beautiful, skillful, nourishing, healing states of heart and mind. And we've been bringing them in in the mornings in the chanting sheets because it's such a powerful way to establish the heart-mind in a good state. And when the heart-mind is abiding, at least to some extent, in those qualities, it's much less prone to being visited by the afflictive states. And I say visited because the Buddha was very clear that the afflictive states are visitors. They're not inherent to who we are. And yet I think particularly with the hindrances, there's a, almost a default tendency to make them mine in a way to appropriate what doesn't actually belong to us. So sense desire comes up, oh, I'm so greedy. Irritation comes up, oh, I'm such an aversive person. Sloth and dopper, I can't believe I'm so dull and drowsy. We take them personally. So the first step in working with the hindrances is to try to see their conditioned nature. They're arising due to conditions. And we can change those conditions by bringing in skillful states like the Brahma-Vihara. So I know for maybe a few of you, the Brahma-Vihara are not so familiar. So before I dive back into the hindrances, I'd like to give just a little bit of an overview of what these four qualities are. So metta, the first one, is a kind of generalized friendliness, goodwill, kindness. And sometimes it's easier, I think, to find those states, at least in the beginning, in relation to non-human beings. So as I think some of you know, I've taken on a practice of when I travel to these different retreat centers, different places, I like to try and get familiar with the wildlife because I'm very fortunate that most of these centers are located in pretty special environments, like here at Temuata. And so I like to get to know the wildlife and to see if there are certain creatures that might evoke these different Brahma-Vihara qualities. I've taken to doing this with birds. So just to give a simple example of how the energy of metta might feel, you might think of a fantail. Maybe you've had that experience just being around in the bush, the forest, certainly walking up the hill there, many times been accompanied by a fantail. And it just flits and darts and here and there, lands, stays for a while, zooms around. And every time that bird comes around, there's just a sense of oh, a lightning and a, a warmth and a simple sense of connection and friendliness. So I don't know if you have a sense of that for yourself. If not, that's okay. Maybe birds aren't your thing. But you might like to try that practice of 
as you engage with different living creatures around here, just notice the heart quality that some of them may evoke. And maybe you can find your own kind of iconic creature that evokes metta. So metta is this basic grounding in energy of warmth and friendliness and kindness. And then when that almost generic goodwill turns towards pain, towards difficulty, towards suffering, it flowers naturally as compassion. So compassion is the second of these four beautiful qualities. And it's the willingness to turn towards suffering and to meet it with care rather than our usual, perhaps more instinctive tendency to back away from it. So sometimes people ask, well, what's the difference between metta and compassion? So metta is a more general, non-specific kind of kindness, whereas compassion has that close relationship, close connection to challenges, difficulties, pain. So energetically, it might feel a little different in the heart. So just continuing with the bird theme, uh, a few years ago, I was on retreat down in Staveley outside of Christchurch. Actually, I think a couple of you here were at that retreat. And there was an incident where a nest that was on the roof of the meditation hall got blown down onto a lower roof. And these little baby birds fell out onto the lower roof. And somebody noticed, so they went and got a ladder and people were climbing up onto the roof and pulling down these little baby birds. And I saw one woman holding this baby bird in her cupped hands and it was a tiny, tiny sparrow, I think. And it had no feathers and it was pink and it was translucent and it was just sitting there in her hand. And energetically, it was just this feeling of, ah, compassion. I don't know if you have a flavor of that and if it might feel a little different from just simple metta. So metta and compassion are two very beautiful, skillful qualities of heart and mind. And just to say, in the context of a retreat, sometimes people feel these beautiful heart openings and feel very inspired by the possibilities of warmth and kindness and connection. And in the context of a retreat, sometimes there's a temptation to express these qualities outwardly, even to perhaps break the noble silence to do that. So just an encouragement when those heart qualities are growing, in a silent retreat it's good to just sort of let them be inward. So, for example, a few years ago, I was on a longer retreat at IMS and somebody got inspired to give a chocolate heart to everyone on the retreat. So we came in and there was this chocolate heart on everyone's cushion. Yeah, it's it's nice. But then it can create all kinds of unforeseen complications. So it's possible that one person's cushion somehow got missed out. And that one person was the person who was already feeling excluded and like they didn't belong. And then they're wondering who was the person and why didn't I get a chocolate? And then somebody else thinks they'd like to offer their favorite brand of chocolate. 
but they know someone on the retreat's diabetic. So then they start wanting the staff to research diabetic chocolates. And, you know, it's proliferation. The initial seed was maybe kindness and compassion, but it can quickly turn into something else. And especially here where so many of us know each other, sometimes it's hard to shift mode from a little joke here or a bit of a hug there or a bit of a gesture and it's well-intentioned, but the kindest thing we can offer each other is the commitment to noble silence, to really giving each other space to befriend ourselves, as I said on opening night. And the three of us here and the managers are really taking care of everyone's needs. So, of course, if you have concern about anyone, you can talk to us about it or the staff. But generally, the invitation, unless it's a total emergency, is to just express your kindness and care through that spaciousness. So then the third one, mudita, appreciative joy, is the capacity to feel gladness, gratitude, appreciation, traditionally of another person's happiness or good fortune. So it's a quality of uplift and inspiration and appreciation for success, good fortune. And in terms of the birds, there's a really iconic one. I try to find different ones in different countries, but for me, the Australian bowerbird is such a great uh, metaphor for mudita. So I teach quite often at a center in the Blue Mountains. And just down the road from that center, somebody showed me a bowerbird's bower. So if you're not familiar with these birds, they build these incredible constructions out of reeds and grasses and twigs and things that's kind of a I don't know what that shape is an arched shape and that in itself is pretty amazing but then the male bowerbird wants to attract the female to the nest so it collects anything blue and then makes a path with all these little blue objects so this particular nest had blue bottle tops and blue pen cases and blue feathers and blue bits of um, sweet wrappers. And they were all arranged in a nice line up to this path. And I just looked at this and I thought of this bowerbird going to all this effort to attract a mate and just felt this sense of appreciation. It's a little bit tinged by, I hope it worked. It was a lot of effort to go to. So you might again get a sense of, is there a different energy in the heart when you hear about the bowerbird compared to the baby bird or the fantail? And just to get a flavor of that, because being able to distinguish between the different qualities energetically of the Brahma-Vihara is really a useful skill. Then lastly, equanimity. And this is perhaps not quite as easily accessible or familiar for people. Certainly, I don't think I'd ever heard the word equanimity until I got involved in Dharma. Sadly, it's not really a a quality that's valued much in our society anymore. It basically means balance of mind, profound steadiness, peace, non-reactivity. 
So just from that description, you might get a sense it's a little bit counter to the way mainstream society tends to live. Etymologically, the word upeka, that is usually translated as equanimity, means to look over. So it's a sense of having the capacity to see the bigger picture, to have a broader perspective, not just to be locked into one's own viewpoint. So in that sense, when I was thinking of birds, this is a little more challenging, but I thought of the ruru, the owl, and specifically, I think two or so retreats ago, there was an owl, ruru, just sitting in the kauri tree in the turning circle there in broad daylight. It was just sitting on the branch. And people were coming up and illicitly taking photos of it with their phones (laughs) (laughs) and going away and coming back and... The Ruru just sat there. It was completely at ease. Didn't need the attention, did not want the attention, just sat there. Eventually it flew off. And I understand that owls have those amazing necks that can rotate 270 degrees. So again, it's that capacity to see broadly. And they fly very high. They have really good eyesight. So they connection to clear seeing for me links the owl to equanimity so that's just a quick snapshot of these different flavors of heart qualities and you may get a sense of how they can be used as antidotes to some of the key afflictive states known as the hindrances so just coming back to the first one the hindrance of sense desire the craving for sense pleasure, the energetic movement towards what we want. It's a painful state. It's an afflictive state if we look more carefully. And so we can think of the energy perhaps of mudita, appreciation or gratitude, as an antidote. Because mudita is an inherently about contentment. When we're tuned in to what's going well, what we can appreciate, what we can feel a sense of gratitude for, that inner quality of gratitude, it's satisfying. I don't know if you've had that experience, but here on retreat, you may in moments have just felt that sense of the good fortune of being here gratitude for the incredible food that were being offered, appreciation that all of the conditions came together that we could be here. And if you can remember being in that state, you didn't really need anything else. Does that feel accurate? It was just a sense of, ah, wow. Why do I need to go chasing after a chocolate bar or whatever else sense desire I might want when... There's just this capacity to rest in an appreciation and gratitude. So ill will or aversion, pretty obviously, perhaps, ill will, the antidote to ill will is good will, which is metta. And again, these Brahmavihara work in two ways. So they act both as preventatives and as antidotes. 
So as I mentioned earlier, when we're abiding in well-being, those sneaky little hindrances can't get their hooks in us. It's like the Brahmaviharas condition the heart and mind. They make it soft and supple and smooth. So there's less grip, there's less chance for the ill will to get its hooks into us. So cultivating the metta is a powerful way to help soothe the agitation of ill will. And um, quite a few years ago now, it may have been my first retreat at IMS, it was a longer retreat, and in the middle I just fell into this totally afflicted, aversive state. And I remember it felt like my mind was wrapped with barbed wire and any kind of mental activity just tight. It was painful. It was super intense, so much so that I couldn't even bear to go into the hall. And I was like, what am I going to do with myself? And I had this vague idea that maybe doing metta was the right thing. But I just, it almost made me want to vomit. <laughs> I would try to bring up the phrases, may I be well, and they would just turn to ash in my mouth. I thought, okay, so I took myself off for a walk, and there's a three-mile loop you can walk around. And I remember stomping along in this totally black mood. And I kept trying to bring in the phrases, I couldn't do me, I couldn't do you. I thought, okay, what about all beings? And I tried to say, may all beings be safe and healthy and happy and at peace. And I couldn't, again, get the words out. I could get as far as all beings. But that was enough. I just stomped around initially, just just saying all beings. I try again, may all, all, all beings. And then it was like, yeah, all beings. And then all beings, all beings. And just saying all beings over and over and over, it worked. Took two miles of the three miles. But I got to a point where just the remembering that there are more beings than just me was able to open up the heart. So... To be creative, simple, play with it, try things out. doesn't have to look like perfect metaphrases, but just energetically that orientation to the possibility of meta can help release the ill will. Then sloth and torpor. We know, I think, anybody not experienced any sloth and torpor so far on this retreat? So common in the first few days maybe the most predominant. And actually there's an animal, the sloth the, or sloth, that uh, embodies that quality. And a friend of mine spent some time in South America and he's a very keen naturalist. He spent time alongside these sloths, observing them for days. He said they barely move. They just hang in the tree for hours and hours and hours and hours. They only come down to defecate, and then they go back up the tree again. But he said, because they move so slowly, the fur, the hair of their fur is actually hollow, 
because they're not moving, it grows algae in it, and so they turn green. <laughs> so I thought that's just the perfect embodiment of this quality. Of, so if any of you start turning green, we might come and give you a poke. <laughs> so sloth and torpor, we were familiar with that. And again, I was just thinking, well, which Brahmavahara might raise the energy there? And Mudita again. Just the uplifting nature of mudita energy. It's possibly a counter. To me, sloth and dorber is collapsing down. And so mudita, it can bring a lightning, a brightening, an uprighting. When we really connect with our good qualities, connect with what's going well. Uh, And Elizabeth talk often about this uprighting. And mudita can be a natural energetic uprighting and brightening of the mind that can counter the sloth and torpor. So then we have the opposite energy imbalance, restlessness and worry. Just the mind whipped into agitation, it can't settle the body likewise, we want to jump out of our skin. So uncomfortable. So for any of these hindrances, because they're afflictive states, compassion is almost a universal solvent. Just connecting to the pain, the suffering of the hindrances, meeting it with compassion. But I think also equanimity, because equanimity is that calming, steadying, non-reactivity establishing a grounding in that stability of heart and mind can be a powerful counterbalance to the uplifted energy, agitated energy. And then lastly, doubt, skeptical doubt. I was going to offer you the metaphor from the suttas of the different bowls of water that uh, are analogies for these different mind states. But in the interest of time, I haven't. But I will just bring in the last one, the metaphor for doubt. As the Buddha says, the mind in doubt is like a bowl of water that's filled with mud and left in a dark place. <laughs> so you can't see the reflection on the water. You know, in the India of the Buddha's time, the bowl of water was used as a mirror. But this bowl of water is not only filled with mud, it's put in a dark place. So it gives you a sense of kind of the doubly undermining quality of doubt it's a quality of darkness so again mudita is this brightening of the mind and this doubt can take a lot of different forms it could be doubt in the teachers it could be doubt in the teachings it could be doubt in our own capacity and i think in the context of A lot of mainstream conditioning, so many of us doubt our own capacities. There tends to be almost a universal self-aversion, self-criticism, harshness, seeing only our faults. But there's actually a discourse that the Buddha gave to a layman where he suggested to this layman that as often as he remembered throughout the day, he should contemplate his own virtues his own good qualities. And I see this as an aspect of mudita practice, the capacity to take in our own strengths, our own good qualities. 
So if doubt happens to be uh, one of your top hindrances, especially self-doubt, you might consider taking on that practice that the Buddha offered to the layman, Mahanama. And as a flavor of mudita practice, to take time to really let in just the fact that you're here. That is amazing. Many different good qualities have made that possible. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. So to reflect on that can help relieve the doubt. There's so much more that we could say about any of these hindrances and also about any of the Brahma-Vihara. We probably will be coming back to them over the coming days. So just in the interest of compassion, I'll bring it to a close for there now. And just thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.